I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 88. Psalm 88. We have been going through the Psalms, usually one sermon per Psalm, and we find ourselves almost to the very end of book three with just one more psalm to go, which of course will be Psalm 89 before Psalm 90 and the beginning of book four, four of five. And as you are turning to Psalm 88, in his short book titled, When Pain is Real, and God seems silent, Ligon Duncan writes the following. Psalm 88 is perhaps the most tragic psalm in all Scripture. No psalm is sadder. Historically, Christians loved the psalms because they express our deepest emotions and put into words our most severe experiences. At the same time, most psalms, even those that focus on suffering or sorrow, contain some explicit notes of redemption. No matter how low the psalmists get, most psalms of lament end with at least some spark of hope or word of grace, but not this one. The tone of Psalm 88, as Ligon Duncan says, is unwaveringly dark. You follow along as I read Psalm 88. The superscription is as follows, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah, to the choir master, according to Mahalath, Leonoth, a mascal of Heman the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles. And my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord, 
I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. I think Ligon Duncan is right. This is a very, very dark and foreboding psalm. And while we don't quite know what are the overall circumstances of this psalm, we do know that Heman the Ezraite is lamenting his very, very dreadful condition, whatever those conditions might have been. And according to 1 Kings 4.13, Heman was a very famous sage and also a prophet. He was a Levite and he was a musician. You can tell that by the superscription because he was associated with the sons of Korah. That's clear from 1 Chronicles 6, 33. He had all of these roles and yet he was downcast and despondent. And he laments several things which are pictured here for us in this psalm. And for us, it begs our indulgence to find out why. I've seen three or four of them in this psalm in certain sections, these laments, and I want to go over them with you because even though this psalm seems very, very dark, there are some things that this man, Heman, is saying to us, sometimes even by what he's not saying. And you and I need to follow this psalm very, very closely because if we don't, we might come out of this study with some sense that a psalm like this is actually arguing against the character of God, something that seems to suggest that God can't be trusted, that God isn't to be believed, that God is perhaps arbitrary and capricious in his ways toward us. But I assure you, nothing is further from the truth. And we can even find such things out by this psalm, even by its opposite, what he's not saying. It sort of screams out at us in different ways. And we need to study this psalm very, very carefully. We're going to go through about four of these 
lament sections of the psalm. And as we do, I want you to listen very, very carefully to things that I think are very, very applicable to us in our Christian lives. Very, very important and I think very instructive and, believe it or not, from this psalm, very, very encouraging. Let's go over them, shall we? Number one, number one, what is this Ezraite saying? What is he lamenting about? What is Heman saying when he's writing or at least singing this psalm? Well, first, I see the lament over God's seeming silence toward his prayers. The lament over God's seeming silence toward his prayers. And because he is the person behind this psalm, at least in terms of a song leader or perhaps the writer, but I want to change it to ourselves. I want to personalize it for us. So maybe we could say it like this, the lament for you and me over God's seeming silence toward my prayers, my prayers. Look at verses 1 and 2 as we begin, and then I'll also read verses 13 and 14 because they are very much parallels in some ways. Verse 1 and 2, O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. And then go down to verse 13 and verse 14. But I, O Lord, cry to you. You see the similarity there with verse 2. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, verse 14, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Now, this is precisely these four verses why we call this a lament psalm. There's excruciating pain in these words, aren't there? We don't know the circumstances, but somehow Heman is very, very discouraged, very down, very despondent. Now, you say, well, wait a minute. There are some other psalms, whether they be from David or others, that also start this way. Oh, Lord God, I cry to you day and night. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to me. That's very familiar territory to us. But of course, most of those psalms have other very encouraging things to say throughout the rest of the psalm, but not here. Not here. Heman is in some kind of awful trouble. And while this is not an unusual opening statement, as I said, at least as far as the other psalms go, given the fact that the rest of this particular psalm is so dark as it is, Heman is obviously lamenting the fact that he seems to be saying that God is just not answering his prayers. And this is a great despair to his soul. It appears when you read it just on the surface that there is simply nothing coming out of heaven but a very dark, brooding silence making him 
all the more discouraged and disconsolate. You ever had that experience? I've had that experience. You're crying out to God, asking God to incline His ear to your prayers, and there seems like there's no response at all. That heaven is completely silent. That the heavens are like brass, and those prayers just clang off the clouds and come right back to us, unanswered. You've had that experience. And yet, I want you to see something here, right in the midst of this pain and this agony, whatever it was that Heman was going through, uh, where he's not hearing anything from heaven. Here's what's encouraging, my friends. Even though this is the case for Heman, he is still praying. That's the key. He's still praying. He's continually crying out to his God. He says, I cry out night and day, day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. Even that phrase, my cry, it's a, it's a full kind of phrase that says, I'm continually crying out to you. My, my prayers are ringing out to you. That means he's still praying. I think that means that he hasn't at all abandoned his God. He hasn't concluded at all that there really isn't a God after all. Isn't it the case that you and I may have had a conversation with someone who either professes to be religious or even if they're not, even as a skeptic, they might say something like this, yeah, yeah, I've tried that thing called prayer. And it just doesn't what? Work. Just doesn't work. I pray and I pray and I ask God for things and he doesn't come through for me. As though, for so many people like that, they presume that God is some kind of cosmic genie where they just uh, rub a little bit here and there and expect God to come instantly to meet all of their needs. Well, that's not what heaven is doing at all. But heaven is silent. Even in the midst of the pain and the sorrow, he continues to pray, but there is nonetheless pain and sorrow. And one thing this psalm doesn't do, and perhaps the reason it's in the Psalter of Israel, is to acknowledge that there are times when we do pray and there is not an answer, or at least an answer that we assume, or an answer that we would want, or an answer that we would certainly cherish. And if, if it's an answer that's not a yes, even an answer sometimes that's a no will do because we know that heaven is at least listening. I don't know what the struggle is in his life. But I do know this. Heman will not stop praying to his God. And notice what he says. Oh, Lord. First verse. God of my what? God of my salvation. He's at least testifying to the fact 
that even though things are not going well at all and there are troubles and there are disasters and circumstances that are far beyond his control, he has not lost the sense that this God is the God of his salvation. Now, you and I, at times, when heaven isn't answering us, might be tempted to say something differently, but we won't. For true believers, we'll say the same thing that Hemond does. I don't know the answer, or the answer might be no, or the answer might be forthcoming, and I'm anxious and impatient for such an answer, but I do know this, O oh Lord, you are the God of my salvation. I'm going to keep crying out day and night. I'm going to keep beseeching you. I'm continually wanting my prayers to come before you. Verse 2, I incline my ear to hear whether or not you've inclined yours to me. Heman still believes, it's very clear here, that Yahweh can answer prayer. I mean, he must believe this because he keeps what? doing it. He keeps praying. He keeps asking. Because otherwise, he might have just been giving up on the concept of prayer altogether. But he doesn't. He emphatically, most emphatically, does not give up on prayer, and neither should you or me. You can't give up. You've got to keep praying. You've got to consistently and persistently cry out to God day and night, asking God to please incline his ear to your plea, just like Hammond does. And, and right out of the gate of Psalm 88, as dark and foreboding as it is, as frustrating as it might be when in comparison with other psalms which are bright and cheery and you want to sing those songs in the enlivened congregation, this one is sometimes also a part of the seasons of our existence, isn't it? Of course it is. Things aren't always peaches and cream. Things sometimes are sad beyond description. Tears are flowing. Challenges are replete. Alec Matir writes about Heman and Psalm 88 in this way. Very wise words. Listen carefully. The Bible, he says, never hides its head in the sand when it comes to life's troubles. Isn't that true? And like all the rest... Psalm 88 is written for our learning. Here is trouble without explanation. Lasting as far back as the eye can see. Seemingly stretching ahead without relief. And likely to be overtaken, still unresolved by death. Should such an experience be ours... How is it to be faced? Start where the psalm starts, by affirming what is known about our God, that He, and only He, is the God of my salvation. Or, as we could translate it, my saving God. My saving God. 
a God whose very nature it is to save his dear ones. This is the purpose of a creed, scaffolding to hold us upright when the storm comes. When everything in us cries out to moan about our lot, cry out rather that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is love that drew salvation's plan, the grace that brought it down to man, the God of all grace. Then, like this lovely psalmist, don't hesitate to see your trials as coming from the hand of God. Those, my friends, are very wise words. Very wise. Because those seasons of doubt and discouragement and despondency, they will come. If you haven't experienced any of, any of those before, guess what? Tomorrow it may come. As you know, the last several years of my life, great trials, tragedy, death, disease, sickness. What do you do? How do you respond? When you pray and you ask God for a reversal, a change, hope, a difference making, and the answer is no. What do you do? How do you respond? I say you got to pray. You got to pray. You got to pray regardless of the outcome. Because number one, we're commanded to do it. And number two, we have the privilege of doing it. Because our God is listening. You might not always assume it, you might not always believe it, but our God is listening. And the Bible tells us that God is looking for us to pray consistently and persistently. Turn over in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. If you want to see someone who is not wanting to stop until she gets an answer, at least an answer of some kind, and hopefully the one she wants, this is your text. Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. And he told them, Jesus' teaching, a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not what? Lose heart. I think that's what Heman is doing. I think that's what he's doing in Psalm 88. He's praying and not losing heart. Now, he's tempted to lose heart. He's tempted to give up. He's tempted not to be persistent or consistent in his praying, but the very first thing he says in this most dark and foreboding psalm is, I am crying out to you how often? Day and night. That's like this widow. You ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow. A widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, notice that, the persistence there, who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he, that judge, the one who didn't respect God nor man, he refused. But afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice 
so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, the Lord Jesus said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him? How often does the Bible say here? Day and night. Day and night. Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Now, your definition and mine about the judge depicted here as the one who's giving the answer to the widow, Jesus turns it around and says he will give justice to them speedily. Well, that's just too slow for most of us. Isn't that true? Because we want instant prayer answers like we want instant coffee. We want the trials and the troubles and the circumstances to be over at once. And this is a great story because even though the judge is not emblematic of God himself because he didn't fear God or respect man, and even though this widow uh, seems like she's just a big bother, the point is actually the same. She's doing what she believes in her heart is her heart. And the judge doesn't want to be bothered by her persistence, and so he just grants her wishes. The point is not all the details. The point is this. Pray and don't give up. Isn't that what it says in the very first verse? And he told them a parable to the effect. Here's the reason for the parable, that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. I think that's what Haman is doing. I think he's praying and not losing heart. Now, he's tempted to. He's tempted to cash it all in. He's tempted to give up. The pain is great, whatever it is, physical, spiritual, financial, familial, material. We don't know. But we know this. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. Colossians chapter 4 Verse 2, Paul's asking for prayer. He wants to pray. He wants them to pray. He wants an effective ministry. He wants God to bless him. And he says in Colossians 4 2, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Don't miss that. Continual, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. It's just like that Matthew 7 passage, isn't it? Matthew 7, 7. Ask, seek, knock. Ask, seek, knock. I mean, whatever we may think that God is or is not doing in and with our lives, we can readily see from these New Testament passages that God desires our prayers and He has a purpose for them within His own divine purposes. And our prayers are vital 
and such purposes. Otherwise, he would never have commanded us to pray at all. It's a part of it. You want to reach out for God's answer? Use your fingers as a prayer prompt. Just as you're reaching out. Say to your God, I need answers to these prayers and I need answers if you would be so kind and so loving and so gracious and my hands are reaching out and they are the very prompts in my heart that I'm serious about such an answer. And of course, sometimes the answer is no. And maybe sometimes that's the challenge greatest of all because we want the answer to be yes. Our unanswered prayers are some of the most excruciating dimensions of the Christian life. And sometimes when the answer is no, it's even more excruciating. Yes, because we want the answer to be yes. We want the answers to be yes and amen. And they are yes and amen in Christ when God is in charge and not us. Because sometimes when we're presumably believing and hoping that we know the plan, and if we were to effectuate such a plan, there would be nothing but clear disaster. We better let him remain in the driver's seat. And he needs no co-pilot. Number two, there's another lament here. If the first has to do with prayer, even the challenge of unanswered prayer, though Heman is doing it, the next is about our ongoing troubles. I would say it like this, the lament over God's inactivity during my ongoing troubles. The lament over God's inactivity during my ongoing troubles. Look at verses 3 through 7. Heman is certainly hurting as verse 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 quite clearly indicate. But please don't assume that he's angry or vindictive or that he's challenging the person of God in some sinful argumentative way. Listen carefully to these lines. Verse 3, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to shield, the grave perhaps. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. No wonder that term Selah is there, a musical interlude, stop. Have a a song without words for a moment. Think about it. Ponder it. He says, my soul, verse 3, is full of troubles. Again, we don't know what those troubles are, but he presumes that his life is 
near death, near the grave, down to the pit, no strength, set loose among the dead, he says, like those who he is seeing who are lying in the grave. They're already dead, and nobody's going to remember them anymore. They're cut off. He's in the depths. He says in verse 6, in the regions dark and deep. I don't know that I've been right there, but perhaps one day it shall come. You might have been there, or you at least might assume you've been to a dark and deep place. You say, well, how do you make sense of verse 7? Your wrath lies heavy upon me. If he's a person who extols the God of his salvation, verse 1, now he's talking about wrath. You overwhelm me with all your waves like the waves of trouble just wash over me. What's he really saying? You know what he's saying? Is I'm living in trouble city. We don't know what it is, but perhaps it's irrelevant to us. He's going through it. You might be going through something similar. Maybe not this dark and deep, but it's tough. Life is tough. It's hard. It's difficult. It's challenging. Again, it could be financial or spiritual or monetary or circumstantial. In some way, Alec Montier again is so helpful. He says, don't bother your head with problems arising or thought to arise from seeing things this way. This is the truth of the matter. If we are in the soup, he's a Brit, if we are in the soup, it is he who has decided what sort of soup it is and at what temperature and how long, and why. He is God. Jesus has assured us that we cannot be plucked out of his and the Father's hand, John 10. Where were we when the trouble came? Why? Where we have always been, in his hand. Did the trial get in because he let go of us? Certainly not. The trial only means that he grips us more tightly. Don't forget that. When you think the trial's at its worst, and you may be thinking or tempted to think that he's letting go, it's not so. He's gripping you even more tightly. This is a, this is a challenging psalm, but... There are aspects of it that when you argue it from the other side, yes, this is the way life is at times, our soul being full of troubles, our life drawing near to the grave, we're down at the pit or so it seems, we're cut off, we're in the depths, regions dark and deep, we're overwhelmed with the waves of trouble. But my friends, that is not the end of the story. That end has not yet been written, at least from our vantage point. 
And if you think of all of the other revelation in the Word of God about how He loves us and cares for us and ministers to us and saves us and grants that we be held more and more tightly by His love and care, don't doubt such a thing. Don't doubt. You cannot doubt that. I mean, if you and I took all of the lament psalms and we mulled them over in our minds over and over and over again, we might be tempted to question the goodness of God. We might be tempted to say, God, are you sure? Do you have me? Do you have me by the palm of your hand? Can you save me? Will you save me? But that's not all the revelation there is. There is a revelation from God that he will keep us safe. We sing those songs. We pray those prayers. We believe that God can be trusted. We need that scaffolding of the creeds that say, I believe in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I believe they will keep me safe. And I believe that even in the lamentable lamentable directions of life, God will keep me safe. God will keep me in his hand. I think Psalm 88 could be a psalm that's in the Psalter because it is the experience of some, maybe many, perhaps not most, but it's there because people can say something like this, I relate to that. That's raw and real to me. I've had that experience. I've gone through that. And the psalmist is allowing us to know that those things, while true in the experience of some, are not the full picture. They're not. Even though it doesn't seem like the answer turns on a dime at the last verse, but just know this, God can be trusted. Some of the psalms do that. This one does not. You know why, I think? I think this psalm might be here because some of those people did die. They did go to the grave. Hebrews chapter 12 gives us a sense, and Hebrews chapter 11 gives us a sense, doesn't it? That there were very, very faithful believers, and some of them died. They died by the sword. They died by other ignominious means. They, they died, and it was a painful death. And yet when they crossed the river of death, they were ushered in by God's saving right hand to the celestial city. This is what's happening in some of these lament psalms, and some people never get out of them. And when they open their eyes next, they're in glory never to suffer again, never to lament again. That's the sin-cursed earth that we live in, but that's the celestial city that gives us the kind of protection and the kind of sinlessness and the kind of joy and the kind of glory that never ends. Number three. Number three in my little list of laments and how this psalm is to be understood Let's call this one the lament over God's plan 
for the process of my sanctification. The lament over God's plan for the process of my sanctification. Look at verses 8 through 12. There, Heman sings, You have caused my companions to shun me. That's when you and I would say, I need a friend. Call a friend. I need a friend. Can someone come alongside me? Is anybody there? The answer for him, seemingly so, is nobody's around. My companions, they've shunned me. He says to the Lord, you've made, a, you've made me a horror to them. I'm shut in that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I, I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Can you see the picture in your mind's eye? I've got my hands open. I'm asking God for deliverance. I'm asking him for help. My eye is growing dim. It's, it's the sorrow that bring me to the dregs of my existence. And I'm calling upon you, O Lord. I'm spreading out my hands to you. And he says in verse 10, as though it couldn't get any worse, do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? He says, take a little pause and ask yourself this question. If you're dead, you can't praise God. Now, of course, we know you can in the afterlife. But what he's saying is, I want to praise you in my life. I want to praise you now. I want to praise you before I die. I don't want the deadness that doesn't allow me to praise you in the here and now. I think that's a legitimate question, don't you? I remember a story of one of my favorite preachers who said about his own grandfather, his dad's dad, who was a preacher. And he was just a little tyke himself, maybe 11 or so. And he said he saw his grandfather in that hospital bed knowing he was dying. And his grandfather said, I just want to preach one more time. I just want to preach one more time. And he couldn't. He died very shortly thereafter. He couldn't do it. But he wanted to. He wanted to praise God. He wanted to extol God Almighty, he wanted to preach, he wanted to extol, maybe even some of his friends, he wanted to hear the message of salvation. Verse 11, is your steadfast love declared in the grave or your faithfulness in Abaddon? The answer, of course, rhetorically is no. He says, I want to praise you. I don't want to die. I want to live so that I can... Proclaim your wonders. Is there anybody in the grave proclaiming wonders? No, they're dead. I want to praise you. I want to praise your faithfulness. I want to be faithful. Are your wonders, verse 12, known in the darkness or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? I think this may actually imply that he really honestly believes he's at death's door. Perhaps it's because of a physical malady, a challenge, a disease, a sickness. 
Does he think he's taking his last breath, perhaps? And you know, so often when we're going through very, very dark times, it may seem like, especially with death and disease all around you, that God is arbitrary and capricious in his dealings. Are you just going to let me die? Are you going to let my family members be killed? Disease, ravages of the sickness of our world? We need them here. We love our people. We assume, I think, at times, especially in challenging seasons, that the process of our sanctification, our growth in grace, doesn't seem to have a rhyme or a reason. It seems nonsensical, whimsical even, with no apparent rational outcome or any kind of pattern for what God would possibly want to do in us or through us. What's the design? What's, what's the goal? What's the end? What's the purpose? I think perhaps Heman was tempted to think all those things as he's struggling, struggling to get a handle on the plan, especially for his spiritual growth. It might be that sometimes when we're struggling in the pit with how God is working in our lives, maybe there's a psalm like this that reminds us you're not in charge. You're not in charge. God is in charge. He will deal with us as He chooses. And that's not arbitrary, and that's not capricious, and that's not devilish, and that's not unkind. He's a good and righteous and loving and gracious God, and He also understands things that we do not know. And Heman might be tempted, like we might be tempted, to think that we know better, and we don't. Maybe sometimes a lament psalm like this is given for us so that we can be cut down a few sizes, clipped a few notches, looking more deeply, understanding the character of God, studying what He's like and how He operates, and to shake us from the sense that we think He might be unkind or uncaring or maybe lost his grip on the plan. I think this is a lament song to be sung so that we regrip that God is God and we are not. I think you'll find something else going on in this psalm. Ligon Duncan, who I quoted earlier, helps us when he describes Heman's view of God from a different angle than we might otherwise be seeing. If you just read this psalm, you're going to think it's all dark and all gloomy. But here's what Ligon Duncan says. Unlike many theologians, many modern theologians, the psalmist, speaking of Heman, is not trying to get God off the hook when it comes to suffering. He does not reject that God is loving, nor does he reject that God is sovereign. 
He never considers for an instant that God is not in control. I mean, you read this psalm, every one of these verses, 18 of them, there's not one sense in that psalm that Heman believes that God has lost a grip. Not at all. Sometimes I think when we read a psalm like this, we assume that we have a free pass to be angry. To ask the question, is God capricious and arbitrary and does he know what he's doing? As though, because there are lament psalms in our Bibles, we can have a free pass on just questioning the character of God at any time for any reason. Not so. Ligon Duncan says, very often when we encounter severe trials and suffering, we are tempted to think that our situation is somehow out of God's hands. Some people even encourage us to doubt God's sovereignty. Oh, God had nothing to do with that tragedy. He didn't know that it was coming. I've heard people say that. All the good things that happen in life, they come from God. All the bad things that happen in life, they come from Satan. God's never around when Satan is doing his stuff, and sometimes God can even be caught unawares because Satan is plying his trade. Not so. Ligon Duncan says, yet Heman, one of the five wisest men in all Israel, never entertained that idea. In other words, give Heman a little bit more credit. He believed God was in charge of everything, including his troubles. He coped with his suffering by fearfully acknowledging God as the sovereign one who rules heaven and earth, including his own suffering. And I say, in that sense, he's Job-like. He's Job-like. Job isn't wanting to curse God and die. Someone told him that he ought to think about that. And he said no. And then, of course, when he knew God even a little bit better than he knew him from the first, he said, I repent in dust and ashes. You see, my dear friends, God has a plan for each and every one of us, and it is none other than everything that includes our complete and final sanctification. And everything he uses at his disposal to bring us to that day is good. You say, you're going to have to tell me that from Scripture. Okay, well, look at Romans 5. Go over and look at Romans 5. There ought to be a few passages that you and I cling to in a time of utter desperation. If Heman knew about these verses in the full and final revelation of God, he would be so encouraged. And you and I have that final revelation. Romans chapter 5, look at verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings. You see the juxtapositioning of those two things? We rejoice in our sufferings. There are going to be people, even professing Christians, who say, no, I don't. I don't rejoice in my sufferings. 
I don't want sufferings, but I do want to rejoice. I want to rejoice when I get all the goodies. And then I'm pretty cranky when the goodies don't show up. Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings knowing, that's a key idea, knowing what suffering is designed to do. And here's what it's designed to do, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see the reason why we ought to rejoice in our sufferings? Because it produces endurance, the suffering. And the endurance itself produces a character in us. And a character in us of Christ's likeness produces hope. And it's all because God loves us and he's poured such love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. You see, we have sometimes unanswered prayers and ongoing troubles and misunderstood sanctification because we've got our eyes focused more on such prayer non-answerings and ongoing troubles and a different kind of view of sanctification than God's view of sanctification through us, in us, for us. The The challenge of it is to bring ourselves to a place that God understands that we do not understand, and He knows we don't understand. And when we think He ought to understand it from our perspective, that's when we get in trouble. That's when we get in trouble. You know that that's when we get chastised. Hebrews Chapter 12 tells us about that. Hebrews chapter 12 says, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Hebrews 12, 5. Nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. See, a part of sanctification is discipline. And verse 7 says, And it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. And for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they, referring to earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he, speaking of our heavenly father, disciplines us for our good. Why? That we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. There may be a yet another reason why him and, and this song is in the Psalter, so that we could understand that maybe part of what's going on here in his life is that he's being disciplined, chastised, so that he could be fully sanctified. 
That's what happens with us. That's why we receive sometimes the whips. We receive the scourges because God is working in us to shape us and mold us into the very image of Christ. And part of that process includes chastisement. You know, when you read a psalm like this and you read about how he's hurting and he's downcast and disconsolate, maybe even destroyed for so he thinks. Maybe part of that is the affliction that he deserves. God is working a work, molding and shaping because he misunderstands his sanctification. He misses, misunderstands his growth in grace. We do that. I do that. God, why are you doing this? Why? Why? I don't understand. This seems arbitrary. This doesn't seem right. This seems wrong. This seems like something that's the opposite of love or the opposite of growth and grace or the opposite of sanctification in my life. And the answer, of course, is you and I are misunderstanding sanctification. We're misunderstanding what God is doing because he uses scourging in our lives to bring us to a greater level of growth. And then we respond, so much of us, myself included, but I don't want the scourging. I don't, I don't want the whips. I, I don't want the, the troubles and the challenges and the trials. I don't want those things. I want all the goodies. I want all the best of everything. But sometimes the fact that we misunderstand what trials are in sanctification causes us to lament. And then when we lament, we see through the lamentation that God is in control, that God is working His work, that God's doing His business, that He's smarter than we are, He's more capable than we are, He's got a definite design and plan that's better than ours, and then we resign, and then we say, then I'll take the trial, James 1, and I'll let that trial have its perfect result so that I can be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I see a fourth and final lament here in verses 13 to 18, and I call it the lament over God's mysterious providence in my circumstances. The lament over God's mysterious providence in my circumstances. Sometimes I misunderstand sanctification, and sometimes I see the circumstances that are so challenging that I see God's mysterious providence as completely arbitrary. And it is a challenge because we're not the Lord. Who counsels the Lord? Who, who gives him a lesson in how to treat people? How does the clay tell the potter, why did you make me this way? This is why often lament is there, verse 13, but I, O Lord, cry out to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. He goes back to prayer again, verse 13, O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Verse 15, afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I'm helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. Now, if you're reading that like I am, you might have the uninitiated, the 
the childish, the unseasoned, the immature. And you read this and you picture a God out there who's maniacal, who's saying, yeah, I've got my thumb on you. There are even people who believe about the Psalms, like I believe it is Psalm 138, that says, blessed is he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks, talking about the Babylonians. And they say, that's just unchristian. Well, perhaps they may say that about Psalm 88. A God who is allowing this man to be afflicted, to suffer terrors, to be helpless, to have wrath sweeping over him, dreadful assaults destroying him. Verse 17, surrounding him like a flood all day long, closing in on him together, causing his friends, his beloved, to shun him, companions becoming darkness, not light. And then the psalm just ends, period. There's no, there's no verse 19 saying, God is good in it all. He'll take care of you. And we know that to be true. But sometimes that's not the way it ends. But for the true believer, even if it ends this way, that tiny, constricted challenge and trial of life that's so narrow that you feel like you're constricted on all sides, well, one day, if you are a true Christian, a true believer, a true follower of Yahweh, it opens itself up into blessing. It's wide with God's mercy. Blessing, honor, glory, help, sanctification, perfection. But it may not end in this life except through a very narrow, constricted way. And it seems like the last section of this psalm, it doesn't give us the hope. It doesn't give us the answer. There's no key. It unlocks itself into blessing. But I assure you, it's there. It's the full revelation. Romans 8, 28, 29, 30. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. And here is God's purpose, verse 29, verse 30, that we would be conformed to the image of his Son. We will one day, even with all the trials and travails of this life, be just like our Lord Jesus Christ, fully conformed to his image. God will do his work. It seems challenging now, the circumstances so baffling to us, not understanding all the ways and the means of God's providential work in us and for us. And the answer, of course, is that we don't know, cannot know with certainty everything that there is to know. So we must, by faith, trust. And we will and we should. If you're a true believer, you have to trust And it's not trust or hope in hope itself or trust itself. It's hope and trust in a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. And that that Lord Jesus Christ himself was in the trials and travails. Father, if this cup can pass by me, 
but not my will, your will be done. He went through unimaginable things that you and I will never, never know. You say, how's that? Well, remember, all the temptations that he went through in his earthly life, including all the way up to the cross, he experienced those temptations to the fullest brunt of them. Why? Because he never yielded. You and I, we're tried and tested and we give up long before we've had the full brunt of it, right? He went through it all to its very depths. Alan Ross closes us with this, gives us a wonderful conclusion to Psalm 88. Here's what he says. Throughout the agony of a prolonged affliction, the faithful never give up hope that God will answer their prayers and give them reason to praise his faithfulness to the congregation. The faithful never despair but keep on praying for God to rescue them from death and restore them to full life. And if they want to ensure that their appeal is in the will of God, they will base it on the praise that will be given to God when the deliverance comes. And for some people in this life, the deliverance will not come, but it'll come in the life that follows. And when it does, there's not going to be one person, one being in heaven who will question at all the goodness of God. They'll, they'll be so gloriously and deliriously happy because they see the plan for what it always was. And they'll say, oh my God, I praise you forever and ever. Let's bow together. Father, this dark and deep and foreboding psalm I think for a hundred reasons but at least this and the reason why it's in our Bibles is because it challenges us to exclaim that we don't know and we can't figure you out your ways are past finding out and therefore, since you are an eternal being, a perfect being, a loving being, a righteous being, we defer to you. We defer to your plan. We submit to your wise mind, your perfect cognition, your unquestioned will your loving correction, the championship of your governance over the whole world, your providence, prayer, your sweetness and elegance, your judgment and chastisement, your purposes and plans, your providence and your outworking plan that is perfect and good and holy. 
And when we, like Job or Heman, or even just our little life, when we come near to questioning your goodness and your plan and your providence and your ways, we want to stop. And we want, even in our questionings, to say you are good and you do good. Your role, your purpose, your plan is perfect and you will do all your goodness for us, for your children. And it will not include only everything that we would want, but things that we would not choose for ourselves but we accept it, we need it, we will be chastised by your good purposes. You love us and you discipline us for good. It seems so trying in the moment, but we know this, Heman the Ezraite is with you now. And his laments, his lamentations have turned themselves into praises and hallelujahs. That's our prayer. Even if we don't get all the answers in this life, even if not everything turns out as a bed of roses, we, we know there's trial and travail, we know there's challenges, we know there's death and sickness and disease, and we know there's spiritual warfare, and we know that there's a devil, and we know that there's something within us that does want to question your goodness and that we're tempted to say, are you in charge? Do you know what you're doing? How can you take them away? How can you do this? Why is that good? And we defer. We defer to your goodness. We defer to your all-wise and all-knowing plan. And as we do, We will thank you and praise you because we know that the constricted narrow way opens itself up into the wide blessing of heaven itself. Lord, thank you for a psalm that challenges us to the very depths. And when we understand it and work our way through it and it'll take a lifetime to do so, we are praising you for your mind Your heart, your plan is so much wiser than anything we could ever conceive. Thank you. We love you. And we ask you to give us greater vistas of knowledge and trust so that we can continue to walk alongside the great I am. Forgive us for challenging your character, for agonizing over things that we have no business questioning, and allow us to trust you with a full-throated reliance so that you are seen for who you really are, the God who is perfect, wise, and glorious. May it be so that we would 
ever trust you each day with a greater and higher resolve to follow you and to glorify you until we see you through your Son face to face. Thank you for tonight. Thank you for a great Lord's Day today. And may we continue, even in our questionings, even in our fears, even in our doubts, to not doubt who you are and what you're making us to be, conforming us to the image of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.